like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. All right, good morning. This is Talking Animals. That was our new Talking Animals theme by the fabulous Rebecca Pulley. Hey, a quick reminder that the WMNF Summer Membership Drive starts two weeks from today, June 5th. I'll be seeking your support for Talking Animals on the morning of June 5th, but I hope you'll consider pledging well before June 5th. And as an inducement, we have an assortment of exclusive, fabulous thank you gifts, including amazing tickets to see the Dylan Wilco My Morning Jacket Show, equally amazing tickets to see Daniel Tosh, and much more. Please visit TalkingAnimals.net for details on these gifts and how to make an early pledge. Again, TalkingAnimals.net. Okay, my guests today are Dr. Barbara Nadison Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, co-authors of Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health. An acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Zubiquity was recently issued in paperback, which provides an ideal opportunity to discuss the book today with its author. So with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 or emailing dj at WMNF. Dot org. Let's welcome Dr. Barbara Nadison Horowitz and Catherine Bowers to Talking Animals. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> and I know it's very early there, so I appreciate you guys uh, being uh, right here with us on Talking Animals this morning. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure. Thank you for having us. For sure. So in the interest of full disclosure and perhaps unnecessary disclosure, I want to mention that Dr. Nadison Horowitz is a colleague and a friend of my brother's. But... Uh, <laughs> Having done that, let's start with Zubiquity itself. So it's the title of the book. Uh, let's face it, it's kind of a fun word to say. But uh, you don't have to travel too far into the book to recognize that Zubiquity really you know, carries some pretty serious meaning and implications. Maybe you could talk about how you guys initially coined the term and uh, what it has ended up uh, meaning to you, you know, since that time. Right. Well, this is Barbara. Um, so I'm a cardiologist. I take care of you know, human patients with heart attacks and high cholesterol and um, about uh, some years ago, I was given this wonderful opportunity to spend some time with the veterinarians at the Los Angeles Zoo. And there I began hearing the veterinarians talking about congestive heart failure in a gorilla or breast cancer in a jaguar or obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, in a, in a bear. And, I, and I, it struck me that in all my years of practicing human medicine, it had never occurred to me that the same diseases that I was taking care of in my human patients, they were taking care of in their animal patients. And um, Catherine Bowers and I started working together on this, this idea that what would happen if human medicine got closer to veterinary medicine and we began looking at our patients as human animals, what insights might the animal side have for us? So um, we were working away on this idea, and uh, we were also very interested in how the idea of evolutionary biology might also help us understand common human medical problems, but we couldn't find a word to describe this, this fusion of fields. And so we coined our own. It comes from zoe, which is Greek for animal, and ubiquity, which is Latin for everywhere. And we came up with ubiquity. And how easily did, the, did that name come about? Was there a big brainstorming session? Because it's such a cool word. And as I said before, you know, only half kidding. It is fun to say, but it also, you know, has a lot to it. <laughs> Were there some uh, sort of second place finishers that, that came close? <laughs> Catherine and um, yes, we did. Um, we did have a brainstorming session that involved a lot of words and a whiteboard and yeah. colored pens. And um, yeah, we had a lot of fun coming up with it. Cool, cool, cool. Well, it's also probably important to quickly point out, um, as as you guys hasten to do in the book, the drawing information and parallels between human health and animal health. Ubiquity is not at all about animal testing. In fact, one of the things that makes Ubiquity universe so fascinating and exciting is that it's kind of a fundamental tenet is this is really a two-way street, right, between 
things that you can find and study in animal health and, and human health, and, and but also going back the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that, that we were, I mean, this is, this is Barbara, the thing that um, was just eye-opening and, and thrilling uh, as a physician to encounter, uh, frankly, uh, for the first time, was that, that what we call, we physicians call spontaneously occurring diseases. These are, these are problems that just happen in the course of an animal or a human animal's life, that, that these things were happening all the time, that in, in the wild, in the oceans, in the skies, animals are born with birth defects sometimes, just as sometimes our, you know, human beings are born with birth defects, and, and animals have bone, long bone fractures, and they may develop cancers, and they may have trauma, um, they may develop kidney failure. I mean, these things happen, as we say, spontaneously. That is, they occur naturally, and there are there are hundreds of millions to hundreds of billions of animals living at any moment on Earth, and not all of them are completely healthy. And so it's this insight that there's so much knowledge that we could gain just from understanding and aiding animals amongst us in our homes and, again, in the wild who have the same, many of the same disorders that we have. And that's why we looked so closely at wildlife biologists and wildlife veterinarians for their work out in the field. We were explicitly not looking at research on lab animals. We were looking for what people knew about wild animals and pets. Right, and it, and really it's it's quite, uh, as you you know sort of make your way into the book, it just feels like sort of one, um, either revelation after another, or just things that you think, well, gosh, I, I kind of knew that, I guess, intuitively, but uh, now that you say it that way, it's like, wow, there's so many kind of aha moments. So, so maybe we'll circle back to... Um, Diseases like cancer and heart disease, I mean, those are obviously very important to the book. And, and uh, as you kind of allude to, uh, uh, Dr. Nash and Horowitz, the, you know, sort of your relationship with the L.A. Zoo and, and examining a tamarind kind of launched you, in a sense, on, on this path. But, I mean, really, there, there's um, so many things that are, that are sort of, uh, again, less expected, as I say, as you get into to the book. It was sort of um, illuminating for its presentation on the array of animals who pursue intoxicants, for example, of one kind or another, and and really the point that that the animal examples uh, that maybe we can touch on um, really do sort of challenge people who would would stigmatize addicts or moralize about the disease when you really find out you know what does happen out out there in the wild. So maybe we can yeah. talk a little bit about about that and just sort of how that hopefully does uh, foster some a little less you know sort of judgmental view of this whole uh, uh, side of things. Yeah, well, this is Barbara. Yeah, actually, um, that's really kind of uh, gratifying that, that you say that because um, as Catherine and I were, were doing our research and moving through this book, we were struck by how often we would encounter problems that animals um, might have that were the kinds of problems that my patients felt guilty about, ashamed about. Um, they, they or maybe their parents or families would be blaming themselves about and, and knowing that they were happening in dogs and cats and uh, you know, lions and bears was, and kangaroos was just kind of really, um, it was a very powerful insight. So the case of uh, substances, let's say. So it turns out that wild animals uh, for, and this has been noted by naturalists for literally decades, sometimes seek out uh, psychoactive substances. For example, there are bighorn sheep in the Canadian Rockies who uh, really like this hallucinogenic lichen that grows at the top of these cliffs, and some of them will scale very steep rocks to get to this lichen and, and grind their teeth down sometimes to the gums just to access it. And um, there are wallabies in Tasmania. So Tasmania has, uh, is one of the world's largest producers of medical-grade uh, opium, and there are huge fields of poppies. And although the farmers enclose these fields with barbed wire fences, some of the wallabies will risk life and limb literally to jump over these fences and access the poppy sap and the poppy straw, and they get high. And some of them keep going back and uh, and actually meet their demise that way. And we have many other examples, including um, a dog, actually, who there are certain dogs that really like licking toads because there's this uh, kind of hallucinogenic substance or euphorogenic substance on the skin of the toad. So we have many examples of animals who seek out substances. Um, there are even birds. There are these wax-winged birds. We learned about them. Some of them fly in California. Some of them are in Europe. Uh, and they are notorious for seeking out fermented berries. They will fly over certain trees that don't have berries that are fermented, 
and they'll, they want to access the fermented berries. And when they get to them, they gorge, and then they become intoxicated. And sometimes they are, have been seen flying in, a, in an erratic way. It's called flying while intoxicated. So there are many examples of that. But the, the other kind of surprising and maybe destigmatizing kinds of examples in our book are the fact that there are animals. There are, we, we learned about um, a chimpanzee and a gorilla that... Uh, this, this, this girl, she sometimes self-induces vomiting in response to social stress. We learned about animals that sometimes try to um, deal with isolation and stress by self-injuring. You know, if, if that kind of a patient were a human patient, a psychiatrist might call her a cutter. Mm-hmm. So there were many, many examples yeah. of this kind of behavior. And and that kind of reminds me, I was, as I was reading this um, uh, a book, uh, you know, Dr. Nassen Horowitz, you're, you're a cardiologist, and um, but you also train as a psychiatrist, which, which you mentioned in the book. But um, by the time I got to the end of the book and, and with some of the things that were said and just as you're talking now, I mean, I, I, I can't help but wonder to what extent did, do you think that training and background um, make you maybe more uh, receptive to sort of the ubiquity connections and, and way of thinking? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that I have always had an interest in psychiatry. I trained early in my career in it. Um, and, but when we started the book, it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't realize how, what turned out to be the case is that some of the most really, um, revelatory insights came from these, the mental illness issue. Um, and so, you know, when we, and we were very, uh, honest about our process. We, if I saw any condition in a human patient, we looked for it in an animal. Mm-hmm. And that included things like obsessive compulsive disorder and self-injury and substance abuse. And so even though we were skeptical initially, it was remarkable how significant the overlaps were. I would say, this is Catherine, that, um, Barbara's training as a psychiatrist actually made her more skeptical at first. And we, mm. would, we made this rubric where we would say, do animals get fill in the blank? We decided to simplify our methodology to its like bare bones. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, looking for it in the humans and the animals. And um, when we got to the psychiatry sections, we both sort of thought there's no way we'll find self-injury in animals. There's no way animals get addicted to things. There's no way animals get eating disorders. And um, that skepticism, uh, we, we found lots of research that, um, satisfied that skeptical quality. Wow, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, it does, I mean, part of, I mean, it's obviously a very serious book and really makes some just, again, really kind of exciting um, connections and, and the implications, obviously, medically, again, in both both directions, but um, are, are, are just really kind of kind of thrilling. But but there's also, I mean, there's sort of this playful side where a lot of times you guys get into the chapters by describing something and you don't necessarily reveal that until a couple of paragraphs later that it's an animal, but you're, you're first describing somebody that could be, you know, a friend of mine or a friend of yours or whatever, or someone that we know that's had a struggle of one kind or another. And it's like, no, that's, that's an orangutan or that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, an animal with, with, uh, an eating disorder. And it's like, wow. I mean, it's just, cause it really, you know, it's, it's very conversational and, and fun reading, but again, very serious. Uh, uh, and again, obviously, uh, sort of very, um, at times, surprising information that that's sort of comes through. Let uh, let's uh, let folks know this is Talking Animals. If you just tune in, my guest is Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, co-authors of Zubiquity: The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health, recently issued in paperback. If you'd like to uh, ask my guests a question or offer a comment, please call eight one three two three nine nine six six three or email DJ at wmnf.org. We have a couple of people actually already holding, so let's get one on there. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Hi, my name is uh, Jason, and I just um, got into vet school. I'll be starting this fall, and I was curious about, um, I'm lucky enough to have also a med school on the same campus, and was, was interested of your theme throughout the book of the interactions between human doctors and animal doctors, and was curious what you thought about, you know, something like starting more dialogue at the school level between med students and vet students, and, you know, integrating the two, and was curious what ideas for discussion topics might be uh, between vet students and med students. Besides this your is, book, of course. Very good question, Jason. Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, that's great, Jason. I, and I don't know whether you're going to a vet school in Florida or, or where where you're going, but yeah, there is this. Um, the One Health movement really has been pulling together um, in medical and animal experts. You know, a, a particularly around the area of infectious disease, what what are called zoonoses. That's the medical term for these infections that pass 
between uh, humans and animals. Um, but yeah, we really feel like this this One Health concept should be amplified, and we have been hosting these ubiquity conferences. Uh, we've had two in Los Angeles already, and our next is going to be in New York, in Manhattan, in November. And what the conferences are is, is we bring together top academic veterinarians and academic physicians to discuss the shared diseases of different species. So, for example, we will have uh, w- breast cancer. We're going to feature breast cancer this year as one of our cases, and we're going to have a top human expert in breast cancer, and he'll present the case of, a, you know, let's say a 45-year-old a teacher with uh, breast cancer. And then we're going to have two veterinary oncologists present a case of, you know, breast cancer in a Siamese cat, and then we're going to have a wildlife uh, veterinarian present, you know, breast cancer in some exotic species, perhaps a lion or a jaguar. And then the three doctors will sit around a table and discuss breast cancer as a general topic, and we love it when our veterinarian comments on the human case and our physicians comment on the animal case. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been thrilling. And then we do that. We have done that for obsessive-compulsive disorder. We've done that for um, certain kinds of heart failure, for bullying, for self-injury, for anxiety. And then the entire group, which is composed of 50% MDs and 50% BVMs, veterinarians, we get on a bus, different buses, and we go to the zoo. So when it was in Los Angeles, we all came to the Los Angeles Zoo, and we went on rounds together, led by the veterinarians at the zoo. And this year, actually, it's going to be, uh, we're going to get on buses and we're going to go to the Bronx Zoo, the wonderful Bronx Zoo. And there we'll be led on rounds by the uh, wildlife, by the veterinarians uh, from the Wildlife Conservation Society. So it really has, um, uh, clearly by by the description of these conferences, it really has fostered a much more sort of um, dialogue and, and, dare I say, Respect, because you certainly make it clear, uh, at least early on in the book, Doctor Anderson uh, Horowitz, that you know, with some of the kind of um, arrogance, I guess, of of uh, MDs, that that you know, that's a tough road to hoe, or at least has been in terms of um, really listening to and respecting uh, veterinarian colleagues. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, um, my profession, um, which has got so many wonderful uh, attributes, uh, there there are some some negatives, and unfortunately, there has been a kind of hierarchical uh, viewpoint. I think that human medicine has had, particularly with reference to veterinary medicine. I I do think that's changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some physicians might be interested to know that it is uh, harder to get into veterinary school than medical school. Uh, there are far far fewer vet schools in the country than med schools, and uh, the training is very, very much overlapping. And it's really interesting as cardiologists to hang around veterinary cardiologists. We completely speak the same language. I mean, I have more in common with veterinary cardiologists in terms of what what I can talk about than with a human oncologist. Uh, It's the same language, vocabulary, and diseases. So uh, I think things are changing. We we hope to accelerate that change. Right. And and so... um... When when you first kind of got on this path, I mean, to what extent were like some colleagues sort of a little, um, I don't know, puzzled or just sort of find it a bit idiosyncratic, like uh, whispering, you know, hey, what what's happened to Barbara or, you know, that kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, I suspect there was a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. but, but frankly, once Catherine and I kind of caught the ubiquity fever and really began, uh, I mean, literally every time we would ask the question, do animals get, and we approached the question skeptically, when we would come up with, yes, they do, it was thrilling. And it was thrilling, for example, to learn, um, you know, we learned about certain animals that have a high inc- higher incidence of breast cancer than others. It turns out the, the BRCA1 mutation, which has been in the news recently because of Angelina Jolie's um, you know, surgical choice. Of course. That bra- the BRCA1 mutation is also responsible for, for a high incidence of breast cancer among certain animals, including there are a group of uh, English Springer Spaniels that have a BRCA1 mutation, and they have a high rate of breast cancer. Uh, and big cats, felids, uh, lions, tigers, jaguars particularly, have a high incidence of breast cancer, and it's felt it's, it's possibly to probably connected to a BRCA1 mutation in the jaguars. So those kinds of insights were exciting to bring back to UCLA, to my colleagues who are experts in breast cancer. And actually, on the other side, we learned, and this was so interesting to, uh, to learn and then to bring back uh, to my colleagues, that there are other mammals who have a very, very, very low incidence of breast cancer. And those are what the veterinarians call professional lactators. These are dairy cows and dairy goats. Uh, these animals 
literally lactate from the time that they're mature, and they almost never get breast cancer. And that, that is consistent with the human epidemiology that uh, has pointed to breastfeeding in, in women as being uh, somewhat protective of breast cancer. And and I I have a lot of ubiquity in my head, so I may uh, maybe misremember this, but but this reminds me. Isn't there also a thing where you point out that um, canine uh, breast cancer is 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 found to be more rare in countries that um, promote spaying of of their of the of the dogs? Yeah, you know, it's real. That's such a great point. We we were, and again, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm a human cardiologist, so we we this I'm talking about sort of journalistically, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, our, this coming conference, we are going to feature breast cancer, so we've actually been having our pre-conversations with all of our experts. And um, it, what I've learned is that, you know, in the U.S., we have a pretty good spay-neuter culture compared to Europe. And um, in certain European culture uh, countries, it's really rarely done. And in those countries, uh, there's a much higher rate of breast cancer. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it it's, uh, you know, in, in humans, uh, oophorectomy, which is, you know, kind of the same as Spang in its essence, that also um, reduces the risk of breast cancer. So, yeah, there are differences based on hormone exposures, presumably, uh, in in the dogs in Europe versus the, the spayed uh, dogs here. And, and also, now that we're on this topic, uh, 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 another thing that comes to mind that's sort of a great um, Zubiquity story is you guys paint a, paint a scene of um, this uh, dinner in New, in New York City at the Princeton Club, and I guess it was primarily um, MDs, but there were some some vets present, and people started talking about cancer. And I guess sort of this hotshot cancer specialist leaned over to the vet that was at his table and said, "Do dogs get melanoma?" Mm-hmm. And that sort of spawned this whole conversation, I think, if not collaboration. Yeah, this was a fascinating story. This was uh, Phil Bergman, who's a veterinarian, veterinary oncologist. And he had been invited to, he had been working with some cancer specialists at Sloan Kettering, and they were out to dinner at the Princeton Club. And exactly right, uh, uh, one of the human oncologists leaned over and said, do dogs get melanoma? And Phil Bergman was an expert in dog melanoma. So the two of them started working together on a treatment for melanoma that ended up curing a group of dogs. And they had, and these were pet dogs. These were not dogs in laboratories. These were people's beloved pets who were enrolling them in a, clinical trial that would help um, develop this, what they call a vaccine for um, melanoma. It's not the kind of vaccine that we get for flu. It's a different kind of vaccine that helps prevent cancer. And, um, and the two of them work together, and it, has, uh, it works so well in dogs that a pharmaceutical company is marketing it to the veterinary community, and there's promise for creating a, a human treatment for melanoma that came out of that. Wow. And and that, uh, in, in a way, kind of reminds me, uh, too, that there's some reference, I think, to like a, um, like a limb-sparing process or technique that, that humans use, but I think was first, again, pioneered um, in dogs by, by a veterinary oncologist? Or? That's right. Yeah, there's a, there's a bone cancer called osteosarcoma that sadly strikes human teenagers frequently, and it also strikes large breed dogs. Uh, golden retrievers and Bernese Mountain Dogs and St. Bernard's, those big, massive dogs. And uh, veterinary oncologists were really the pioneers working with human oncologists, too, but in figuring out ways of treating this osteosarcoma so that they wouldn't have to amputate the, the leg and that, or the, the limb, and that was um, then replicated in humans and is helping save limbs. So again, we, we just just in our sort of little chat here, we we've heard about uh, a number of sort of things where where the crossover really is is extremely beneficial, sometimes sort of revolutionary. Um, so, are beyond these conferences that you guys are holding, do you do you see that there's more and more kind of um, acceptance or at least consideration of, of this in, in the, the the kind of the broader field? Yeah, you know, there, as I mentioned before, you know, One Health has been really uh, trying to, you know, bring together the fields. I think that the, I think veterinarians, well, for sure, veterinarians recognize the benefits of this. And a part of the reason for that is that they are taught comparatively from the first day of medical school. I mean, when, they're, when they learn about heart disease, they learn about heart disease in a four-chambered mam- four, you know, a mammal with four cardiac chambers and a reptile with three cardiac chambers and a fish with two. So they're learning comparatively between species. But we physicians only learn about homo sapiens. So um, the real barrier, I think, at this point in, in the fields coming together is 
encouraging physicians and nurses and psychotherapists, these are people who take care of human beings, to recognize that there's benefit and there's knowledge and there's wisdom uh, on the other side of the species divide. So in addition to our conferences, yes, there are there are other um, you know there are other groups who are trying to bring the fields together. But what we really feel in, in ubiquity in our in our book and in our conferences is that there are certain areas which are particularly uh, could be particularly generative that are that have been somewhat overlooked. And the psychiatric, the mental illnesses, we feel that that is such a rich area for again for psychotherapists, uh, teachers, people with everything from anxiety to compulsive disorders to eating disorders to binge eating, overeating, that there's so much knowledge in those areas that we're not accessing from veterinarians and other animal experts. So so if, uh, if it were up to you, um, how would you alter or uh, reshape the, uh, the med school curriculum to, to better serve this side of things? Well, certainly, I, I do think that there would be uh, there could be tremendous benefit by having some some more comparative courses. But even uh, as a sort of simpler intervention, when our residents are being trained, these are you know interns and residents and even medical students in psychiatry. One of the major ways that we take care of patients now with anxiety and in some cases depression is using something called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the great experts in behavioral therapy are animal experts. When we talked to veterinarians who take care of, let's say, a, a, a stallion who is biting herself, uh, you know, biting himself over and over and over again, these are flank biters, or a, a dog who is licking and licking, licking at his paw until the skin breaks, or a or a parrot who is plucking out her feathers. When we talk to the veterinarians about what, how they understand that self-injury and what they do to treat it, um, those ideas are so relevant to the treatment of a self-injuring human animal. And so we love the idea of having our trainees spend time with animal uh, behavior specialists. Cool. That's one idea. We yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like if I, if I pressed you, there'd probably be plenty more. But uh, I'm Duncan Strauss. This is Talking Animals. I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, co-authors of Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health, recently issued in paperback. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 or emailing dj at wmnf.org. Let's get one of our callers on. You've been holding for quite some time. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Hello, it's you. Um. Yeah, it's me. Yep, go ahead, please. Okay, I'm sorry. I've been on, I've been on hold so long I didn't know. I know. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just, just from the conversations that, that you've had, I had a couple of questions. Um, first of all, the, um, the conference that she's having, is, is there going to be any conference in Florida that can be attended? You know, um, we are, it's funny, some, some uh, physicians and some veterinarians from uh, University of Florida had, had contacted us a few months ago, and we have had uh, some general conversations about possibly doing that. We would, we would love to come to Florida. Florida has actually been one of the leaders in the One Health uh, movement, and uh, there's a lot of, we know there are a lot of physicians also who, who would be interested. So, yes, we'd love to do one in Florida. We don't have one planned right now. Okay. Okay, I'm turning my radio off because I I can't hear you and it at the same time. So, so is it? Yeah, there's not there's not a conference plan at the moment for Florida, but they have they have considered it. Okay, um, because I think that you would have a huge attendance. Um, there's I do I do animal rescue. My sister does animal rescue. My two friends do animal rescue. I mean, there's there's tons of people who would really want to attend a conference like this. Um, and also, the zoo tour, um, is that available to students? I, I missed, I couldn't hear it. Is, is, is what it, available to students? I couldn't hear Yeah, it. You're, 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 unfortunately, yourself, uh, I think we're in trouble here, but if you want to try one more time to say, is, is the what okay, available? The, the zoo tour that she talked about, is that available to students? Because I am also trying to make the decision of enrolling between veterinary and medical school. Oh, interesting. Um, that the zoo tour was part of our Zubiquity conferences. We spend the morning in an academic set, setting, and then the afternoon is at an academic zoo setting. So um, it's kind of more of a more of a tour, and that's part of the conferences. But um, 
you know, many many zoos around the country do use the um, the kind of input and consulting of uh, local human medical people. So that is something you could look into. Um, you're you're talking about something really interesting with the animal rescue groups that you're involved in. It was really important to Barbara and me that that these ideas be accessible to everybody. That they that they that this isn't just a conversation between veterinarians and physicians, although that's of course very important, but we really wanted to make sure that um, just regular readers and you know, patients and uh, parents and anybody out there who's interested in their own health or the health of someone else could use this kind of thinking to um, get information and you know, th- think about um, improving their own their own health and um, you know confronting disease and getting better. Caller, thank you for your call. We're going to move on, but thank you so much. And uh, along those lines, we should mention that there's a great website, zubiquity.com. And for those scoring at home, that's Z-O-O-B-I-Q-U-I-T-Y.com. So um, let's uh, take one more call and uh, get back to some of my questions. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Good morning. Hi. Did you have a question for our guest? I did. Uh, <clears throat> it might seem a little off topic. Let me turn the radio down. Hang on one sec. Um, I'm an actor. And uh, one of the tools we use uh, is to replicate uh, the movements and, and everything uh, about certain animals. Uh, for instance, in uh, Silence of the Lamb, uh, Sir Anthony used a rat because, uh, and you know, he, he he adapted certain attributes of a rat into that character. I was I was wondering um, if there's a if there's an animal out there that uh, that's very human-like without being human, like you know, of course, there's, there's uh, apes and, and whatnot, but uh, more, more. I was thinking more along the lines of the female, uh, feline, uh, sort. <laughs> well, this is this is a really interesting question. I have to say, it's one we've never gotten before, and and we're in Los Angeles, surrounded by actors, so it's an interesting thought. <laughs> um, I don't know that I could answer that, but there are some really interesting, deep commonalities across species that can, um, that are, you know, just in, even um, body movements. Like if you, if you look at grooming across species, that's something that um, almost every animal does. Even something like a snake after it eats will sometimes wipe its mouth on the ground. It doesn't have hands, so it can't wipe its face with a napkin, but it will wipe its mouth on the ground. Or, um, you know, you've seen flies that kind of use their, their front appendages to groom their face after eating, and um, I don't know if this is even close to answering your question, but it, I, I think it's really interesting to look across, to, to find something that we do as an, kind of a human animal, and look uh-huh. for its correlate in, in other species. Yeah. Just, to, just yeah. as a, a follow-up, just because, you know, you brought up Silence of the Lambs there, um, and we learned that uh, there, are, there are scientists who have actually looked at how predators in the wild, sharks and carnivores, how they hunt and how they choose their prey um, as a kind of model for understanding how human predators might be hunting and choosing their victims. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, uh, there are a couple of films I can think of. You know, a shark was used. Uh, <clears throat> the fellow was a, a killer, and he never blinked. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was just, it was creepy as hell, uh, but it was great. And that's uh, they, they call them externals and uh, insects, animals, things like that. Uh, that's something that it's hard, but I really, really, really want to master it. And, you know, if you can do that, it's, it's your, your beast mode act. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you, uh, you know, uh, this, this sounds really cool and interesting. And, and you know, when you when you have a role of one kind or another that reflects this, uh, I hope you'll let us know and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it on the air. Maybe we'll have you talk about it on the air as well. Ah, that would be great. All right. Thanks so much for your call. Okay, this is Talking Animals. We're sort of in the final moments of uh, speaking with our guests, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers. They're, again, authors of Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health, just recently issued in paperback. So so a, a question for you, Catherine, sort of parallel to, to a couple that I've, I've um, directed towards Dr. Natterson Horowitz. So so you are an accomplished journalist and science writer. How has the Zubiquity experience um, affected your work and sensibility and how you approach what, what you do? I would say it's changed the way I view the world and my place in it. <laughs> not, not, to, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. It's um, 
just realizing how connected we all are to every other living thing has been um, eye-opening. Just and also just realizing that um, you know the evolution that we talk about that connects us to our deep past uh, is something that happens every minute of every day. So we are um, we are we are connected kind of to what's around us at the moment, but also in the past. Barbara and I, doing our research, we found articles about dinosaur cancer. And just realizing that cancer is something that has been around since the age of the dinosaurs and probably before, um, and I don't, it took some of the pressure off of being human, actually. <laughs> it, it sometimes feels like we bring, things, bring disease and illness upon ourselves with our bad human habits. And, of course, there are things that we do that can amplify our risks. But um, disease and health is really just part of being a human animal on Earth, and I find something really comforting and connecting about that. Cool. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty profound. That's great. So here's one of our uh, emailers uh, who simply asks, how does OCD manifest in a bear? Thanks. <laughs> Susan. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I just used that randomly as an example. So compulsive disorders are, have been described and are treated by veterinarians all the time in animals from cats and dogs to birds to, you know, big mammals. And, and you know, it's really interesting that, if, well, OCD uh, in humans involves the O for obsession, and that involves a thought. And, and in order for a doctor to know if there's a thought, there needs to be a verbal communication of that thought. So we can't actually call it um, OCD. We can call it uh, compulsive disorders, or for example, in dogs, it's called canine compulsive disorder. And for, for anyone who's interested, uh, Nicholas Dodman, who's a veterinarian um, at, at Tufts, has written some wonderful, uh, very scientific and, and uh, more lay-oriented articles on this topic. Uh, many other veterinarians have as well. But um, one of the most fascinating uh, parallels between compulsive disorders in animals and in humans is that many of the compulsions center around grooming. So if you look at a human being with OCD, one of the most common uh, compulsions that they might have is hand-washing or hair-brushing, again, grooming-related activities. And if you look at animals, uh, dogs, for example, who have compulsive disorders, for many of them it's licking and licking and licking. Um, parrots who pluck out their feathers, that's kind of probably a form of grooming and preening. Um, uh, you know, this compulsive, we saw a video of a dog who compulsively, um, you know, sort of tries to clean uh, his mouth after eating. So it's fascinating that the, the activities often center around uh, grooming. And there are many other parallels. It turns out that trauma can unmask compulsive disorders in animals, and the same thing is true on the human side. Um, and it, it, even the, the developmental windows when the disorder emerges in humans and animals is very similar. Well, okay. I think, uh, Susan, you, you've got your answer. Um, so, you know, gosh, we've touched on um, some of the surprises, at least to me in the book, and it sounds like along the way probably early on to, to you guys as well. And, and there's certainly others, for example, uh, at one point you talk about how cases of animals, in a sense, committing suicide are, are known and some others. I mean, uh, to me, there's just it's, it's just so full of just really fascinating, sometimes startling information. Looking back, what, what if, if each of you had to just pick sort of one thing that was most sort of surprising or just kind of really um, caught you as, as just a, a notable thing that you just didn't expect to find, what, what would you identify? I, uh, I really like the story of the binge-eating grasshopper. Yeah. Uh, we, we talked to a, a scientist who was looking at what would happen to grasshoppers if they were really, really scared in their environment. So he took a group of grasshoppers in a meadow and let them just eat what they would normally eat, which is a high-protein high grass. And then he enclosed some of them with their mortal enemy, a predatory spider. And the grasshoppers that were enclosed with this predatory spider stopped eating the protein-rich grass, and they sidled over to a flowering plant called goldenrod, and they started eating the goldenrod instead. Um, the scientist used this phrase. He said they were binge eating on carbohydrates, and, um, and it showed us that we are not the only animals that binge eat under stress and that, that might prefer carbohydrates when we're stressed and have a little bit of a sugar rush. Um, he thinks it's because it helps the animal fuel its escape and that it readies it for uh, a fight or flight moment, but I just thought that was interesting that that uh, that an insect could have a binge eating episode for sure, and that there was in the, in the, the old animal world that there's not only that but night eating and secret eating. And it's mm -hmm. like wow, 
Mm-hmm. So how, how uh, food hoarding. yeah, so Dr. Nadison Horowitz, was there something that really particularly stood out for you as something you were really surprised by or just did not expect to find as you delved into this? Gosh, this question is like is like picking picking your favorite child. I know, I know, I know. Um, actually, you know, because I have teenagers, we actually both have teenagers. Uh, we we ended up spending a fair amount of time looking at adolescents and animals, and it was really eye opening uh, to learn uh, that adolescence, of course, is not uniquely human. Um, and we looked at adolescents in animals as varied as gazelles and sea otters and elephants and even zebra finches and birds. Um, and there were a couple insights that really have affected how I am as a mom and how I think about my kids, uh, and to some extent has helped me do a little tiny bit less worrying, which I... <laughs> wow, cool. Parent of teenagers. I learned that, um, that risk-taking is very, very essential. Uh, it's ubiquitous among adolescent animals, uh, and there's a, a, a neurobiology, there's a, there's a brain science that underlies that risk-taking in adolescent aged animals. It, uh, it involves changes in the brain that make adolescent animals more curious, um, more interested in exploring, more, uh, more sensation-seeking. And as a result of, of those changes in these, the brains of the gazelles and the otters and the elephants who are turning into grown-ups, they, they go out and they do take more risks. And sometimes that risk-taking results in injury and worse. But what we learned was that it's necessary for the animals to, to grow, to find their own uh, place in the world. And there's something very comforting and, um, and really surprising in a way that the same kinds of concerns that I have about my own kids, uh, animal parents probably have about their, their offspring as well. So that was, that was very interesting to me. Cool, yeah, and and they probably nod knowingly also uh, as their <laughs> adolescents go off into some sort of uncharted territory. So, okay, well, gosh, yeah, we just have reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Barbara Nadison Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, uh, authors of Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health. It's just now out in paperback. There's a great, uh, really thorough, uh, wonderful website, zubiquity.com, and again, Z-O-O-B-I-Q-U-I-T. Why and they're also on Facebook so and Twitter. So uh, thank you so much for uh, getting up early and making the time to chat with us on Talking Animals. Really a fascinating conversation and, of course, obviously a fascinating great book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so uh, much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. All right, let's step uh, now into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. This is uh, Danny Boy with a version of a piece called Dangerous Animals, Part 1, on today's Comedy Corner. I'm talking animals. So it's, it's lovely to be here in, in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, the first thing my friends t- said to me when I said I'm off to Canada, they said, uh, oh, watch out for the bears, Danny. <laughs> and then they said, if you see an angry bear, pretend to be dead. I, like, I won't be pretending for long. <laughs> it's a bear that's already angry, right? Surely I shouldn't be playing a practical joke on it. It's not in the right frame of mind. In this thing, and I, I'm dead. I'm dead. I hate people that give you these people that give you advice on dangerous animals. If you see any dangerous animal, run, just run, hope for the best. I was in I was in Australia last month, and uh, who is some Australians in, or just or, or fans of months? I don't know. I don't really know what you're applauding. Um, I was over there in in, uh, in Australia, and um, I wanted to go on a Safari to Kakadu National Park. It's a wonderful wildlife park. And I booked the safari, but then I got home that day, and on the news there was a story that two crocodiles had sneaked into the tourist part of the park. And I, on their own, I don't think they joined a tour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two, please. <laughs> well, we booked, you'll just have to check again. Uh, <laughs> very, str- very interesting creatures, crocodiles. I don't know if you know this about them, but... A crocodile is a very fast creature. I know they look slow, don't they? But a crocodile is faster than a horse over the first hundred metres. I don't know how many horses it took to find that out. (laughs) All right. That was Danny Boy with an edit of a piece called Dangerous Animals Part 1, taken from his album entitled Subject to Change live. I'm Duncan Strauss. Towards the end of the show, we'll play Name That Animal Tune. The winner uh, will win a copy of Wild Flag, the debut CD by Wild Flag, the post-theater Kennedy band. 
featuring Carrie Brownstein, who's perhaps best known now from uh, Portlandia. He was also a guest a year ago or so on Talking Animals. So we'll do that in a few minutes here on Talking Animals. Right now, it's time for animal news and announcements. First, though, we got to tell you in more detail that, uh, again, two weeks from today, the uh, WNF Summer Membership Drive starts. That's June 5th. And uh, I'll be up to bat that very morning at 9 a.m., of course, to uh, ask for your support on June 5th, again from 9 to 10 a.m. But uh, ideally, ideally, it's great to uh, to get support before that show. So if you want to go to the tip jar at WMNF.org, just go to the, the, the website, find the schedule, click on Talking Animals, click on that page, and at the very top there's the tip jar. But uh, even simpler, perhaps, at this point, now that we're all caught up, you can go to TalkingAnimals.net. I have all kinds of information about uh, ways that you can uh, pledge and some of our exclusive cool thank you uh, gifts, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Also, June is when we celebrate the 10th anniversary of Talking Animals with a special live broadcast concert of animal songs. That's going to be on the morning of June 19th at our regular showtime. More on that in a moment as well. But again, you can wish us a happy anniversary by pledging. Yes, I'm not above playing that card. Not at all. So, uh, and uh, of course, in this case, you can get the anniversary gift. Uh, some of our uh, exclusive Talking Animals thank you gifts, premiums as they're known in the trade, which include, uh, we have a pair of killer tickets to see uh, Bob Dylan, Wilco, My Morning Jacket, and on this date, Bob Weir at the Americanorama Festival of Music, June 27th. At the easy-to-say Mid-Florida Credit Union Amphitheater at the uh, Florida State Fairgrounds. Of course, previously 1-800-ASK-GARY, previously Ford Amphitheater, simpler names. But um, you can look at the seating chart online and check out the location of these seats. Pretty amazing. Section 7, row N, seats 3 and 4. But again, that's all on TalkingAnimals.net. We also have tickets to see Daniel Tosh at the Straz Center at Carol Morsani Hall, June 27th as well. Uh, part of Tasha's month-long June Gloom Tour. And t- insanely good tickets. They came from Daniel himself. Of course, the uh, week-long stay at the Kauai Condo. And uh, we'll have a couple books from Mark Marin. His uh, new memoir, great, uh, really acclaimed uh, memoir, Attempting Normal. Signed with sort of a Talking Animals inscription. we got the Talking Animals t-shirts that we only really offer at the Fun Drives. And you can, again, see those and see the book and uh, information about... These tickets at TalkingAnimals.net. And again, we're going to offer kind of special tickets to attend the Talking Animals anniversary celebration the morning of June 19th, when uh, several musicians, including Rebecca Pulley, Ronnie Elliott, Judy Tampa, Natty Moss Bond, several others, will perform animal songs backed by a full band in the live music studio. So we'll have a small audience at this uh, party of sorts, and you can pledge for tickets or a package where you get a ticket and a Talking Animals t-shirt. And I think we'll have at least one pair of tickets also to see uh, Caesar Milan at the Stress Center, June 15th. So, anyways, find out more by going to TalkingAnimals.net. We'll take it from there. So, on a little bit sadder note, something very important to this show, uh, Allison Giannata, who's responsible for our fabulous new website, for instance, and other things in the Talking Animals world, lost her cat Dory yesterday after a really sort of pretty complicated medical struggle. So, I'm really just so sorry for her loss and uh, hope now that uh, Dory may indeed... Rest in peace. In terms of the tornado, uh, I saw one coverage, a uh, piece of coverage last night where a survivor was doing a live interview and her house, of course, was just leveled and uh, she couldn't find her dog. And um, in the midst of the live TV interview, uh, the, the uh, I think a cameraman or something discovered the dog. So anyways, it's, uh, it's a real uh, tearjerker. You can just search Sky News. Uh, our survivor finds dog, and um, I think you might uh, enjoy that. And also, of course, we're going to do something on, on Talking Animals soon about the comfort dogs, but those uh, ones from the Lutheran Ministries have, again, been deployed now to, uh, to Oklahoma City to help folks uh, deal with their uh, feelings and emotions from that tragedy. So, um, story that I didn't get to last week, but meant to, the habitats of many plants and animals will shrink dramatically this century unless governments act quickly to cut rising greenhouse gas emissions, scientists said. Last week, studying 50,000 species around the world, the scientists from Britain, Australia, and Colombia said plants, amphibians, and reptiles were most vulnerable as global temperatures rise and rainfall patterns change. About 50 7% of plants and 34% of animal species were likely to lose more than half the area with a climate suited to them 
by the uh, 2080s. If nothing was done to limit emissions from power plants, factories, and vehicles, they wrote in the journal Nature Climate Change. I mentioned this uh, last week in our conversation with Ian Hallam, but I want to be sure to mention again that the uh, benefit concert for Friends of Hillsborough County Animal Services coming up uh, this uh, this Sunday, May 26th. It's the annual 17th, I think, annual Scratch My Back fundraiser at Skipper Smokehouse. And it uh, goes to assist uh, the uh, resources of the uh, Hillsborough County Animal Services. So uh, among the bands there are the Lint Rollers, the Quivering Rhythm Hounds, the Groves, other cool activities. You can check out the more information on that by going to Skipper's website, Skipper Smokehouse. So that's this Sunday, May 26th. Scratch my back. All right. We'll maybe uh, hold some of the others for uh, next week. And... Uh, Get into uh, Name That Animal Tune. This is a giveaway. You do not need to be a WMNF member and uh, to win, and there will be a prize. Again, a copy of the Wild Flag CD entitled, conveniently enough, Wild Flag. To so the first person who calls in a uh, correct title of this animal song to 813-239-9663, it's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals. <laughs> There's an old Australian stockman lying, dying. And he gets himself up onto one elbow and he turns to his mates who are gathered round and he says, Watch me wallabies feed, mate. Watch me wallabies feed. They're a dangerous breed, mate. So watch me wallabies feed all together now. Tiny kangaroo down the All right, we might have to take that off air. Sort of running a little behind at this point with our good conversation with uh, Dr. Niderson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers. So, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I'll be back next Wednesday, of course, with another edition. I hope you'll join us then. Please head to our website, TalkingAnimals.net. There's archives of every show we've ever done over nearly 10 years' time now. And uh, info about, again, the Fun Drive show, uh, June 5th, and our fabulous exclusive thank you gifts there, too. And uh, links to Facebook, Twitter, etc. Thanks to also, as always, to Talking Animals Broadcast Outreach Consultant Jill Ball Trades, Libby Vassalis. And uh, thanks, uh, I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks for listening. We're closing out today's show with an animal song from Bob Dylan. Keep in mind, we have one pair of insanely good tickets to see Dylan, Wilco, Bob Weir, and my morning jacket here in Tampa on June 27th. So this is Dylan. Doing man gave na- uh, names to all the animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Thanks for listening. Speak with you again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. on Talking Animals. Thanks. Pause and he liked to howl. Great big furry back.